Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 6,000 years ago, around the time when farming and cuneiform writing were invented, a curious plant was discovered. It had some impressive qualities. It could grow in rough terrain, it could repel insects, and you didn't even have to care for it that much. But the best part was how it made people feel. Lots of ancient civilizations thought it was a gift from God, and they used it as a medicine. And that love lasted for thousands of years. In the early 20th century, the founder of Johns Hopkins Hospital called the plant God's own medicine. But the plant seeds are used to make a drug that last year alone killed about 13,000 Americans. The story of heroin, which comes from the opium poppy, isn't actually unique. Sometimes discoveries we think are good for us turn out to wreak havoc on our lives. Paul Offit is a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's tried to understand how scientific discovery can lead to tragedy. He's the author of the book, Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, and he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, let's stick with that story of heroin for a minute. It was shocking to me that once upon a time, heroin was sold as an over-the-counter drug, meaning, like, it's not a big deal. You don't need to get a prescription for it. People thought it was pretty good for you. They gave it to kids. How did we get to that place where people were, you know, taking heroin and it was okay? That's a great question. I think what ended up happening is the company that made it, Bayer, which also made aspirin, and made aspirin right. the same year, which right. was 1895. Um, when they made aspirin, aspirin was because they were worried that aspirin could cause inflammation of the stomach, so-called gastritis. That was available by prescription only. They made heroin in the same year, and for about 30 years, heroin was available over the counter. The American Medical Association embraced it, used it to treat a variety of things, but very soon we found out that it was enormously addictive. And did it come right off the market when people found out that it was incredibly addictive? By 1924, we passed an act in the United States basically making the sale of heroin illegal and sold one underground. And interestingly, underground in the early uh, 1900s in America meant Jewish mobsters, people like Meyer Lansky and Dutch Schultz and, and Legs Diamond, Arnold Rossi, and all those guys were Jewish mobsters. Full hmm. disclosure, my grandfather's brother also fell, fell in the same category. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the term that they use, this was interesting to me, the term that they use, it's a slang term. You're not going to find this in Leo Rostin's Joy of Yiddish book. But the, the slang term that was used was schmecker, was the term for addict. And so heroin was referred to as schmeck, which was then anglicized to smack. Hmm. So uh, you talk about a series of drugs, uh, morphine, heroin, Oxycontin. They were all developed to try to fix a problem. And in the end, the fix ended up being at least as bad as the problem. Does that say something to you about science, about medicine, about, I don't know, the pharmaceutical industry? Like, how could that have happened that you had these series of drugs and people thought, yep, heroin, that'll fix it? 
Yeah, I think it's an example of medical hubris. I think we, we continued to believe wrongly that we could separate pain relief from addiction. And so you know, opium users became opium addicts. And then we thought, okay, we'll purify opium's main ingredient, which is morphine. Because right. it's pure, we can give less of it. And so opium right. addicts became morphine addicts. Then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of chemically modify it so it crosses the blood-brain barrier easier, more easily. And that was heroin. And so morphine addicts became heroin addicts. Right. And then we took another component of opium, which was thebane, chemically modified it to form oxycodone. And so then we became opioid addicts. You know, we just continue not to learn this lesson. And interestingly, there was an article last week stating that that uh, researchers believe that they had finally uh, separated pain relief from addiction. But I'm telling you, after 2,500 years, we should at least be skeptical of quotations like that. How did you get started thinking about this whole genre of scientific advances that just went astray? I mean, it, people thought they were advances, but they turned out so wrong. My, my expertise is generally in vaccines. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that invented a vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine. So I always watch the, you know, the difficulties in creating biologicals. Uh, vaccines are a perfect example. You know, the, the polio vaccine that was made in 1955 that was heralded as, you know, groundbreaking. Jonas Salk was a hero. Right. Um, there was a company that made that vaccine badly. Cutter Laboratories failed to inactivate the polio virus. So inadvertently, 120,000 children in the United States were injected with live, fully virulent polio virus. Oh 40,000 developed, uh, you know, developed abortive or short-lived polio about 200 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was one of the worst biological disasters in this country's history, and that's always true. You know, it's medicine always advances slowly and painfully, and mm. um, it's true of any advance. Any advance always has some something associated with it, which is uh, the downside. So, um, okay, we talked about drugs and addiction. I want to talk about something else very different uh, that touches, uh, I would say, every American's life. And it's the issue of fat. We have heard in the last few years this idea that maybe low fat, you know, that had been talked about for decades and decades, maybe that's actually not so great to go on a low fat diet and to focus on that. You look at how we got this wrong for so many decades, how we became so in love with the idea um, of low fat, of getting saturated fat out of our diet. Explain to me how that happened. Well, the way things sadly happen in medicine sometimes, which is people just simply uh, make definitive statements based on limited data. And, and that's what happened here. I mean, there was a, a very influential diet guru, if you will, in the 1970s named Ansel Keys, who said that we should eat less fat and, and that we should restrict ultimately fats to less than 30 percent of the total calories that we take. And, and McGovern actually set up a task force that said the same thing. But we learn as we go. Yeah, but okay, if somebody thinks that they, if a scientist or a doctor thinks, look, I've looked at the data and I, I can see what it shows, and in this case, low-fat diets are, are clearly better diets, and then they go and tell that to people, how do you get ever get out of that cycle? I mean, if the person is malintentioned, you could imagine, well, you just find a well-intentioned person. But if the person is well-intentioned and believes that the data is sufficient, aren't we always going to be under that sort of... I don't know, impression that we have plenty of data until the next tranche of data comes in and shows us, oops, actually, butter, not as bad as margarine. 
Right. I think that's true. I mean, you, you and I would both agree that 100 years from now, we're going to know much more about science and health than we know now. But we don't want to believe that's true, especially when it comes to issues of our own health. We want to believe that we know everything we need to know right now to make the, to make the right decision right now. But that's not true. Obviously, there are some medicine has limits. I think we're going to learn as we go. So there's always some degree of uncertainty, which is difficult for people, which is why I think at some level we're drawn to that guru. I mean, like a Deepak Chopra or Mehmet Oz, who set themselves up as all knowing. And Mm. that is very reassuring to us, even though it's not true. So then do you think that there's like a moral to these mistakes in terms of that we could avoid them more or no, it's impossible. We can't. I guess my moral is this. I I do think science gets it right. Uh, Over time, science will get it right because if your data are correct over time, they will be reproduced and you'll be shown to be correct. But if you're incorrect, um, then you'll you'll be shown to be incorrect. So, for example, somebody like Brian McMahon, who who wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine claiming that excess coffee drinking caused pancreatic cancer. Brian McMahon was was a Harvard Public Health uh, uh, scientist. You know, New England Journal of Medicine is arguably the best of the clinical journals. That was wrong, and, and time showed that it was wrong. That doesn't mean that you can't trust science. I think it means that you should be skeptical of scientists because scientists get it wrong all the time. But science doesn't get it wrong. And I think that's an important distinction. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Paul Offit, a doctor at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and author of the book Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Um, Do you think that the scientific or the medical community should be more cautious? Maybe should slow things down a little bit. Maybe that would uh, hinder progress a little. But maybe it would mean that we got things right a higher percentage of the time. I think we should be skeptical of, of the single study. We shouldn't fall into this single study trap. So, for example, in the late 1990s, a British re- researcher claimed that the combination of measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. The media was all over that that uh, publication and assumed incorrectly that it was right. It was an extraordinary claim. If you look closely at that paper, you could see that it was based on essentially no evidence. And 17 studies ultimately showed that it was wrong. But we jumped all over that. I mean, parents chose not to vaccinate their children. Right. There were outbreaks of, of measles both in the United Kingdom and, and Europe and in this country because of that single study. And, and you can give many examples of that. I mean, there, there are Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for lobotomies uh, as, as a discovery. Nobel Prizes awarded for a worm that supposedly caused cancer, which wasn't true. Um, so I think we should just take a breath when, when an extraordinary claim uh, comes out. But to that issue of vaccines, a couple of years ago, there was a poll by Pew that showed that uh, 9% of Americans don't believe that the measles vaccine is safe. Now, clearly, as you say, the paper that that talked about that was discredited, and there's been lots of work since then to show that. But if you are highlighting scientific mistakes where only maybe decades later people figure out, whoa, we got that wrong, and there were these big implications of that, how do you square that for somebody who's not as sure about, you know, giving their child the MMR vaccine? Well, what I try and do in the book anyway is to have sort of each of these seven stories ends up with a lesson at the end. So what did we learn from this? It's kind of like an Aesop's fable for science uh, lovers. Mm. But no, I think what you said earlier was interesting, you know, that they didn't believe that the uh, measles-containing vaccine was safe. Um, It's not a belief system. Uh, This is one of the the joys of science for me. It's an evidence-based system. And you don't have to believe whether or not MMR uh, vaccine causes autism because you have a mountain of evidence that shows that it doesn't. It's a fact, much as evolution or gravity is a fact. So it's not a belief system any more than evolution is a belief system or climate change is a belief system. Those are facts. 
Do you think there was a time when we created more problems via science? Like when you think about the problems that you talk about, heroin and getting things wrong about diet, you know, th- these effects ripple out to millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. Do you think our science is at a place where maybe it's less likely to make mistakes than it was 100 years ago when we knew some stuff, but a lot of things were still very new when you think about chemistry and so on? Sure. I, I, we know more, so I think we're much better at this. I, I guess what, uh, and I, there's one story about this in the book, I think where science can be dangerous in a sense is when it's used to sort of as a reason to express your worst prejudices. So that's one story in the book uh, about a very popular scientific treatise that was written uh, in the early 1900s by a, a New York City lawyer and conservationist named Madison Grant. He called it the passing of the great race. And what this book did was it took eugenics one step further. He tried to make the case that, that it wasn't just that characteristics could be passed from one family member to another, not physical characteristics, but other characteristics like loyalty or bravery or the likelihood to be a, a criminal, mm. but that in fact this was a phenomenon of races and that, that, that mm. were, there were superior races and inferior races. That book was ultimately translated into, into German where it was essentially plagiarized by a young corporal who was imprisoned in Landsberg prison. He wrote a book to Madison, a letter to Madison Grant and said, this book is my Bible. And then he put whole sections of that book into his book, which he called My Struggle or Mein Kampf. And mm. um, he made the passing of the great race require reading when he came to power in the early 1930s in Germany. Right, so I think, right. you know, I, I think you could you could hear echoes of that today. Honestly, I think if, if you, for example, had some awful paper that was published claiming that they had identified the, the genetics of someone who was likely to be a murderer or the genetics of someone who was likely to be a rapist and that those genes were more likely expressed in people who were from Mexico that there would be members of this administration who would who would embrace it even though obviously it would be wrong. There's a lot of bad science that's published obviously every day because there's 4,000 papers that are published in the world's medical and scientific literature a day. So they follow a bell-shaped curve. Some are great, some are awful, most are more or less mediocre. But you can pretty much find a paper that claims anything. So we should be skeptical and, and wait for reproducibility. So uh, you have created, as you mentioned, a vaccine for rotavirus, which results in diarrhea and dehydration, um, particularly in kids in developing countries. I wonder what you did when you were developing that vaccine to try to figure out how you make this an unequivocal public health win, how to make sure you don't fall into any traps or, you know, make any mistakes. Well, you never know. Uh, you know, we did phase one and phase two and ultimately phase three trials. So we did a phase three trial, a prospective placebo-controlled 70,000-person, 11-country, four-year trial that, that cost about 200 or $350 million to show that the vaccine was safe and effective. But that didn't prove that it was safe and effective. I think, you know, before the vaccine was then you know, licensed and given both in the United States and in the world. Um, And now hundreds of millions of doses have been given. You know, you don't know. And Maurice Hilleman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines and that he made nine of the 14 vaccines we currently give to our children, said it best. I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. And that was true here as well. You never know. Now, there are catchment systems in place like the Vaccine Safety Data Link to show if there really is any problem. And I think now we've learned that there isn't. But you don't know. You don't know until you put it into a lot of people. And it's incredibly nerve-wracking. How long did the worry last for? Um, I would say the worry lasted for about five years. The vaccine was licensed and recommended in 2006. Now you're at hundreds of millions of doses. So I think you, you can you can relax. Right, right. You want the mountain of data to be an enormous mountain. Yes. No, people say that, you know, that your life sort of vacillates between moments of boredom and anxiety. Actually, you can have both at the same time. But mm. 
That's what I learned. How do you get the confidence to develop something that could be dangerous, that, that, you know, that, I mean, obviously has such potential, huge upsides, but, you know, does have these potential downsides? Well, I work in a hospital where, you know, prior to this vaccines uh, being licensed and used, you know, we'd see 400 children admitted a uh, winter with, with uh, you know, severe dehydration caused by this virus. I saw a child die of rotavirus when I was a resident. Mm. I mean, that's what you're working against. Right, you're trying right. to fight the virus and right. you want to fight it in the most effective way possible. You don't want there to be side effects, but that, that's the motivator. Paul Offit is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. He's also a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he's author of the book Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. We spoke last spring. Offit's upcoming book, by the way, is called Bad Advice, or Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your Best Source of Health Information. It's slated for release this May. Question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain. You need a test. Yeah, think of a test. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. In the 80s, a young guy named Brewster Kale started working in an industry that was getting very hot. And in the 90s, he sold a couple businesses to some up-and-coming companies. One of those companies had only gone online four years before, but I think you could safely say that things kind of worked out. It was called Amazon. But Brewster Kale didn't get paid by Amazon in cash. He got paid in stock. Again, kind of worked out. What Brewster Kale went on to do, though, after he sold his businesses, was unusual. He decided he wanted to be a librarian. Actually, the librarian of the Internet. For about 20 years, Kale has been trying to collect web pages. So we archive the full World Wide Web every two months. And we now have 1,000 librarians guiding how we do that. It's for, available for free on archive.org, which is pretty neat. The motivation behind this, though, only incidentally has to do with technology. For example, he's working to digitize one to two million books a year. But why? Facts matter. I think especially in this last election cycle, we found that people were just making stuff up and passing it off as true. And facts matter. Truth matters. Referencing things matters. Remembering when we have candidates uh, going and saying, I never said that. Well, yes, they did. How do you go and make that easily and smoothly available? It's by archiving things like television, radio broadcasts, making it searchable, referenceable. And so it's, it isn't something that you can just paper over. Of course, politicians have been shifting and shading their positions for a long time, and Kale wants the Internet Archive to be around for lots more political cycles. He worries that we're getting away from the early dreams that he and other pioneers had for the web, that it would be a place of connections and sharing knowledge, and that instead it's become a place in which knowledge is uncertain and under attack. When President Trump was running for office, he said in a speech about terrorists doing their recruiting and communicating online that, quote, we are losing a lot of people because of the Internet and we have to do something. And he spoke about, quote, maybe in certain areas closing the Internet up in some way. 
When I talked to Kale in December of last year, I asked him if the president's suggestion, this idea of closing up the Internet, if that could really happen. That can absolutely happen. So in uh, the Internet Archive, which is this rich materials, you know, millions of books, I don't know, is blocked to everyone in China right now. The Chinese government said that there was some couple of videos that uh, somebody had posted on the Internet Archive that they didn't want to have available, so they blocked everything. Uh, Russia has blocked and unblocked the Internet Archive over time. Right now, I believe Turkey is blocking uh, the Internet Archive. Okay, so governments have tremendous power to do the, to use a kind of on-off switch here. Yes, absolutely. And we'll see whether uh, the United States grows into that pattern. At this point, there's been kind of First Amendment uh, that has really been strongly adhered to, freedom of the press. But Trump, um, as you were quoting, has mocked freedom of the press and uh, even jokingly talked of killing journalists. He hated them so much. So uh, I think we may be coming into a fairly different time. We don't know what's going to happen. All we can tell is what it is that's been stated repeatedly by the officials that are taking over in Washington. So one of the steps that you took uh, very soon after the election was to talk about backing up the Internet Archive in Canada. Why? So when Trump was elected president, we woke up and thought, oh, well, that's a bit of a surprise. The polls predicted something else. We went back to the television archive. We've been archiving all of television and political ads and et cetera. And we went and searched to find what has he said about the Internet and freedom of the press. And what we found were some shocking statements. Really, we don't know what's going to happen. But we said, well, we should at least take him at his word. And since the Internet Archive thinks long term, if we're trying to build the Library of Alexandria version two, let's learn from version one, which is best known for, well, not being here anymore. So the idea of, of taking preservation of our information is very seriously. And we thought about it and we said, well, we have it in two locations, but both are in the Bay Area. We have a partial copy in Alexandria, Egypt, really, and also in Amsterdam, but those are partial copies. So he said, why don't we go and make a full copy in another country? And we had been working with Canada about doing partial copy of everything digitized from them. We said, why don't we just ramp that up to be a full copy? Hmm. So we've been in conversation with the University of Alberta and Toronto, and it's going great. I imagine there are people who have built websites in the past, uh, who've been mentioned on them, who want part of their history to disappear. You know, maybe they're ashamed of something they did. They think, oh, gosh, you know, I was 18. uh, I shouldn't have put that online. Do you think people have a right to, I don't know, make a mistake, do something and have it disappear? Certainly private citizens are often using the Internet for things that aren't meant for the ages. So if it, um, and so we get uh, takedown requests from the uh, Wayback Machine all the hmm. time. So if people send to info at archive.org, um, then we'll take things out of the Wayback Machine. And that seems to be a big issue. Hmm. Um, there are some entities like, you know, should politicians right. or should large corporations or should the government websites be able to do this? Some of that's a little bit up for grabs, but right now... Uh, a lot of these are taken down. Well, and I was going to say, and we we have seen efforts by governments, including our government, to retroactively kind of polish things up and make it seem like, you know, if you if you sort of go back to a previous press release or something, that things weren't exactly the way they they kind of <laughs> said they were. 
Oh, sure. Yes, it's the Orwellian uh, idea of going back and, and changing past press releases actually happen. There's one that uh, was pointed out by one of our users was uh, George W. Bush standing on an aircraft carrier saying mission accomplished. And the headline read, combat operations in Iraq have ceased. Mm-hmm. And a couple weeks later, they changed it to say major combat operations huh. have ceased. So that seems pretty Orwellian. But then a couple months after that, the whole press release disappeared off their website completely. So the only record of it was actually on archive.org's Wayback Machine. I can't even tell you which is worse, you know, changing the past or deleting the past. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Brewster Kale, who many people think of as the Internet's librarian. Um, so I've got to ask you, in this context about the rise of fake news, which... I guess it's part of our culture now. Uh, Certainly in the last year or two, we've seen an awful lot of it. Um, And not just as part of our politics, um, but it's something that has gotten into the politics of other countries, too. Um, You've been involved in the web for a long time. What do you make of what you're seeing? Oh, it feels tragic, doesn't it? Uh, we have plenty of blame to go around. Let me let me share some of, of my favorite complaints. Twitter. Somebody decided 140 characters, and 140 characters is a headline. So all we have is people blurting headlines with no substantial anything to back it up. And we had a whole campaign largely by, based on shouting headlines. Somebody came up with 140 characters. They could have made it 500 words. And I think the world... Uh, it would be a very different place and a better place if we were to change some of these these things that we look back on and go and say, that was a mistake. There's uh, the trending news that is all AI based on what you're interested right, in on Facebook. Right. Well, that's been that's been covered. But let's look a little deeper. We've conned almost everybody into turning to their screens to answer the questions that we've basically said, the library is on your screen. You can go and find anything you want. Just go to Google. It turns out that's not true. Almost all the 20th century's books magazines, newspapers are not online. So if you wanted to go and find out and cite something for real, say you're a Wikipedian, say you're a journalist, you, you're you going to go to something that you can find online. Right. You're not going to go back to a library. Right. So we librarians have failed as well to make all of the treasures in our libraries available to this next generation. So we've got to fix that pronto. How much money is there and like getting out all the microfilm. I mean, I remember being in college and like looking at microfilm of old newspapers. But that's that's a process. You About need a hundred million dollars. A hundred million dollars, did you say? Uh, all that's it. To be able to build a Yale, a Princeton, or a Boston Public Library class library that would be available to all, maybe some of it through lending or some kind of restrictions mm-hmm. and things like that, is about one hundred million dollars one-time cost. So we are now uh, digitizing a thousand books a day, and we're starting to deal with much more on the modern books. But we would really like partners to be able to get that built, say, in the next couple of years, so that people have access, easy access, to all the, say, nonfiction material, so they can cite their Wikipedia articles on something real, and not just bouncing around on whatever people have to happen to have put in a blog. Can you imagine, you've talked a lot about the library at Alexandria, can you imagine um, that the Internet Archive will be around in, I don't know, a thousand years? 
the Internet Archive, hopefully, in some vestige, will be around in a thousand years. What happens to libraries is they're burned. They're, they're destroyed, and they're generally destroyed by governments. They don't want the old stuff around. Often, you know, a hundred years later, they're sorry, and they try to put it back together again, but it's destroyed. So that will happen to the Internet Archive at some point, um, hopefully not soon, but at, at some point. So let's design for it. If they'd made another copy of the Library of Alexandria and put it in India or China, We'd have the other works mm. of Aristotle, mm. the other plays of Euripides. Mm. It would be fantastic. But we don't. They didn't make a copy. Mm. I think a lot of people have uh, asked this question, but as people go, spend more and more of their lives online, what do you think should happen to like little libraries that are in every town? Obviously, there's big libraries like the New York Public Library. There's big, you know, lots and lots of libraries in in L.A. and in Houston and all over the place. Um, what should happen to libraries, which there's so many of? Oh, they should stay and grow. I love the quirky little libraries that have their own points of view. And how can they grow in this sort of winner-takes-all, everything's going to be from Amazon kind of world? Let's deliver the best we have to offer to anybody curious enough to want to have access to it. And let's do it in lots of different ways. Let's not spend less on libraries. Let's spend it differently. Mm. Because I don't think we're spending the $12 billion a year we spend on libraries all that well. Mm. We're ending up with these databases that these libraries are subscribing to, and they're just becoming customer service departments or just handling people that just want a, a warm place to be on the Internet. We can do so much more with this infrastructure. You know, a while back we talked on this show to a boy uh, who – young boy, and um, he had been born with a hand that had limited mobility, and so – he went to his local public library in Delaware, I think, and um, there was a 3D printer, and he printed himself a new hand with a lot more mobility. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like an, a fascinating thing that could happen at a library. Libraries, I think, are, are interesting. Uh, public libraries, mostly what you're talking about now, um, by going and bringing... Uh, much more resources than you can have in your house, more than you can get through your laptop. What What's the big screen experience? What's that 3D printer? What's the, because you might have reference librarians on tap. They also have a special role in the copyright regime where we're allowed to go and expected to preserve and provide enduring access to materials, some of which are in print, but a lot of which are no longer in print. If you wanted to get to a newspaper, not in the sense of today's newspaper, but last week's, last month's, last year's, last decades, that's what libraries are are kind of essential for. Mm -hmm. So let's go and build on that in the digital era. If we don't put the best we have to offer within reach of our children, we're going to get the generation we deserve. And what's on the Internet isn't good enough. It's thin. Anything we know well, yeah, there may be a Wikipedia article. Um, maybe there's some random blog post, but the a lot of the background materials, the debates, the whole 20th century really is missing. Hmm. And if we don't educate people on the lessons of the 20th century, we could end up in trouble. Brewster Kale is founder of the Internet Archive, a nonprofit digital library. Brewster, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kara. We've got more about how the Internet Archive works and about their decision to back up their work in Canada. That's at innovationhub.org. 
Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. In 1979, one of my favorite television stations began broadcasting. It was started by a guy who, before he started a TV station, was famous mostly for escorting the first lady, Lady Bird Johnson, down the aisle at her daughter's wedding. But his real love was media. He'd been a radio DJ, a press secretary, a media reporter. So it probably was not a surprise that in the late 1970s, Brian Lamb had an idea that didn't just change TV, it changed politics. It was called the Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, C-SPAN. I spoke with Lamb back in April about the fact that C-SPAN, low-key as it might be, has become part of American pop culture. Here is a recent clip from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Coming up at 10 a.m. on C-SPAN, the House inquiry into Russia's tampering in the election. At 11, the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on Russian interference. At 12, the Senate committee hears testimony from Jared Kushner on his meetings with Russians. Hold on, I thought 12 was the House committee's questioning of Paul Manafort on his Russian meetings. Let's... Hey, what's the holdup, guys? You done with these promos? Hey, Chuck, what's it to? Oh, God, that's now a closed meeting and is held on Wednesday. No, that's the House committee questioning of Roger Stone on his Russian connections. No, you mean the House committee questioning of Carter Page on his Russian connections. Wait, those are different guys? God, I, so. I don't know. How is anybody... I mean, it, it, it is... Everyone out. I am new boss, Ivan Sispanovich. Brian Lamb, not Ivan C. Spanovich, joins us. Brian Lamb, welcome. Hi, Kara. <laughs> so how do you feel when you hear C-SPAN, um, which obviously is famous for just broadcasting the proceedings on the Senate floor and the House floor, kind of absorbed into pop culture that way? Well, I have to tell you that we have a, a pretty good audience that registers among young people and I've always thought it they didn't really watch C-SPAN as much as they watch Saturday Night Live and Colbert <laughs> and John Stewart, and they think they've watched us. So uh, we love the publicity. Did you get any pushback initially from uh, politicians when you said, I want to broadcast hearings or, you know, whatever it is, I, I, I want to put you on television? People said, oh, yeah, gosh, I don't know how introducing cameras into these rooms and these chambers, I don't know how it's going to change people's behavior. Because I think that's one of the objections that a lot of people have to cameras in courts and in and in political areas that people perform for the cameras instead of focusing on sort of the task at hand. Well, what was interesting, and because I'm an old guy now and I was a young guy then, um, the old timers were the ones that by and large were opposed to the idea of bringing television cameras into the chambers of the House and the Senate. The history of television in the hearing rooms is a bit uh, different. The Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, that they named one of the buildings after, was totally opposed to cameras ever being in the House hearing rooms. And so he had a, a moratorium on as long as he was Speaker. The Senate was not like that. They were always open. And the House kept watching and resenting the fact that the Senate was getting all the attention. <laughs> and. Yeah, and it's, it's it's kind of the story of openness in Washington. Every time one says, we're going to be open, and the other says no, eventually the one that says no eventually has to open. And the only ones that haven't done that uh, so far uh, are the Supreme Court members who refuse to open it up to cameras. But almost everybody else sees the value of the public being able to watch how the decisions are being made. Do you ever uh, think yourself watching what people do in, in congressional hearings or... 
uh, you know, on the floor of the House or Senate. Do you ever think, uh, I can tell they're playing to the cameras here, and and maybe it would be nice if we could turn them off for a while so that they could do some of those backroom deals that maybe would get something done? I do not. Okay. Um, I think um, there are times when I look, just like you suggest, I look and say, obviously, they're playing to the cameras, but it never leads me to think that they ought to turn them off. Uh, I've always thought these are adults. They have been elected by their constituencies, and the constituency and the adults who have been elected ought to be able to figure out how to do this in front of cameras. And keep in mind at all times, that's my money, that's your money, and the people can watch his money. It's $4 trillion worth of tax money, and they ought to be able to do that work in public except in the case of a national security issue. Do you ever actually look at the ratings of C-SPAN and think about what people are watching and what people aren't? I think about it, but we don't have ratings. And um, in some ways, I don't even want to watch because that would defeat uh, ratings because that would defeat uh, what our purpose is. I mean, there are occasions where we'll cover something that maybe in the entire United States, there might be 5,000 people watching it. Hmm. but. If it's the right 5,000, it'll matter. And then other times when everybody's covering the State of the Union or whatever, our numbers will be maybe a million or so. But I don't know. And we've never known. Uh, We've never had the Nielsen thing. And uh, I hope we don't have to start it. But we have no ratings. We have no stars. We have no commercials. (laughs) That's a great tagline. We've got no ratings. We've got no stars. We're just here. (laughs) And... We are so inexpensive. I mean, give you an example. Every month we get six pennies from every home that we go into. Hmm. ESPN gets late latest figure I saw was eight dollars and twenty five cents. So, um, of course, they're incredibly valuable and incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. And people do love sports more than almost anything else. And I don't want to act like I'm fooling myself. We are not exactly, uh, as somebody once wrote, the fastest turtle in the pet shop. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just what it is. And so far, so good. It's, uh, I feel very comfortable knowing that, um, a bunch of human beings who run these for-profit companies have stuck with us for 38 years. Uh, so I, uh, mentioned before that I am a C-SPAN fan. Uh, there is one thing though, that I'm not a big fan of, which is call-in shows. And I feel like callers often come in with, statements rather than questions. They've got these very strong opinions. But I wonder, is it important to you to get those opinions out there? Well, Kara, you know, during the last election, an enormous number of people in the media missed what happened. They didn't know the depth of the feeling on people out there and why they were thinking the way they were thinking when they voted for Donald Trump. We didn't have any surprises in that area. We had listened to And we split the lines up, one left, one right, one Democrat, one Republican, one independent, that kind of thing. There was no surprise for us uh, in listening to them. And that's part of the reason for the program. It's Mm. they can't we we don't mind that they get on their soapbox. There are a lot of people, though, in politics that refuse to take calls. Mm. They don't want to mess up their hands in that kind of a people to people kind of thing. And they avoid them like crazy. Then there are others that don't mind it at all. And as far as I know. No one has lost their life from appearing on a C-SPAN calling show. <laughs> so there's nothing really to worry about. And anybody that is on uh, knows how to handle themselves. They're in the public light. 
And so that serves a purpose just like everything else we do for a slice of the audience. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right in saying this. Share has been one of your call-in people, right? Just doesn't she call in from time to time? But so was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And so was Teddy Kennedy. Hmm. I mean, it was it's strange over the years of who's called in uh, because people they hear something, and that was the case of President Reagan, and they wanted to set the record straight. Huh. So, uh, and this it is also, while he was president. This he was like calling from the White House. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, we had been down to the White House, and he had met with forty-five students, and we recorded the interview with the forty-five students. Came back to the studio, ran the thirty-minute program. He had gone back to the living quarters. And had not been prompted by anybody because nobody wanted him to call, I can tell you at the time. I remember that's the last thing the troika around him wanted him to do. And all of a sudden, his, he, got, he called the White House operator and said, get me on that program. And uh, she did. And, uh, and it was fabulous because the kids couldn't believe it when he called in. Huh. So you, you talked a, we talked a little bit about um, the last election. Um, we've got, obviously, a relatively young administration in the White House. Uh, and you've seen a lot of administrations. I talked about that, you know, all the way going back to, to the Johnson administration. Um, does this feel—I I feel like it's a common question that you ask people. How has Washington changed over time? What have you seen? How does this compare? And you've been around Washington, so let me ask you, does this feel like a, like a normal sort of relatively young administration? Or as many people, both who like President Trump and don't like him, would say, is Donald Trump different from most of the politicians that you've ever seen? Yeah, but most politicians are different from the politicians I've ever seen. Hmm. In other words, you couldn't have lived through the Nixon administration or the Johnson administration. And I was in my 20s then, without seeing um, some very difficult times. This man is different by a long shot. And, I, you know, everybody in the country thinks he's different. And uh, I know what you're getting at here. Well, I don't know what you're getting at. I suspect what you're getting <laughs> at here is that, uh, that the people are deeply divided over this man and what's going on. But I've lived through deeply deep division hmm. uh, with uh, LBJ and the Vietnam War, very deep division, mm-hmm. uh, and deep division on Richard Nixon uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, he basically had to leave office. There's mm-hmm. n- been nothing like that ever in history. Uh, and so I lived through Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. impeached, right, uh, right. not convicted, but impeached. Right. If somebody said to you, and I mean, you've, I'm sure you've heard it, Look, when you started out, there was no uh, CNN, clearly no Fox News, um, no MSNBC. Um, Now we've got a whole bunch of all news channels. If there were to be uh, something like the uh, Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, uh, when we see hearings about, you know, the current uh, investigations into Russia, those things are very frequently covered, sometimes wall to wall. The the Neil Gorsuch hearings we saw covered wall to wall um, on cable channels. Who needs C-SPAN? They're just duplicating something that now, that once was novel, but now is, you know, the province of a lot of people. Well, I, that's, I think about that all the time. Um, I'm glad they're all carrying it. There used to be a time when the networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, would get together and say, you cover one day, I'll cover the next, which allowed 
you know, uh, the money to keep rolling in and not have the kind of coverage that uh, all the networks could have given it. But more than anything else, we are more important when no one is there. We're not important when everybody is there, except that we will never comment on what you're watching. So if you want a place to go where you can watch the entire process without having somebody tell you what you just saw, we are there. The other thing, though, that I think we do that's just as important as that is that we have an archive. And anybody in the country and the world, for that matter, can watch anything we've covered free of charge in its entirety. At any time, we have 225,000 hours in our archive, and it's free. Hmm. Plus, we then take a hearing and run it in prime time or run it overnight or run it over the weekends to give people a choice. Right. So uh, I think it's all worked out very well for everybody in the process. And along the way, we've gotten a lot more voices by having a MSNBC and a Fox and a CNN and, and all the business networks. I think it's been a tremendous plus instead of uh, anything else. One of the things that you've done a lot is um, host programs where people have mostly written books, but they've done other things too, and that's why you're interviewing them. Um, book notes and, and Q&A. When you look back, I know this is a hard question, but when you look back, are there a couple people that you point to where like the interview still stays with you? The first one that comes to mind, yeah, lots of them, by the way, but the first one that comes to mind is Shelby Foote. Mm-hmm. We did a, this is going to sound strange, we did a three-hour interview with Shelby Foote in Memphis, Tennessee, in his bedroom. <laughs> That's memorable. You'll remember that. Here's the reason, though. <laughs> That's where he wrote his books on the Civil War. Hmm. Um, and he would, he actually spent, during the time that he wrote, he would spend alone time in his bedroom <clears throat> writing these books and sleeping in that room while he was, you know, he wrote a million words on the Civil War. But there was a fascinating moment for me in the interview with Shelby Foote when we finished talking about how he wrote and all that. And we were taking calls from all over the country. And by the way, people love to call in and talk to these authors. It's a, you can just hear it in their voice. Mm. I said, what do you do, Mr. Foote, when you finish a book. And he said, well, here's what I do. I I spend oh, three or four months reading Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. <laughs> sure. Said, Little light reading. No, I said, sure. I said you, you're kidding me. And he walked me over to his bookshelf and there were the seven volumes sitting on the bookshelf. And, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody because I've never read it. I, I have read enough of Proust to know that I wouldn't read the seven volumes. Uh, <laughs> he picked up the book, he opened it up, and he showed me, written down on the flap there, the, the nine times that he had read Remembrance of Things Past and wow. the date. Wow. So I tend to remember those kind of moments, mm. and there are lots of them over mm. the years. Mm. And you're so young, Kara, that someday when I interview <laughs> you, uh, you'll be talking about things that happened 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, this this will be an interview that stuck with me, right? This one right here. <laughs> so do you imagine, um, like when you think about your own life in the future, do you imagine yourself continuing to interview people and read books and, you know, do shows on C-SPAN? Well, I'm 75 years old. I'm amazed at how good I feel now. But, you know, when you get into this time of your life, you never know. 
And you never know when somebody's going to say to me, don't you think you've done enough of that? Uh, <laughs> you're starting to drool, get off the air. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun right now. And I don't know how, if I leave tomorrow or today, it won't really matter that much. It'll matter more to me than anybody else. But it's a, for me right now, interviewing somebody, and I've got three books that I'm reading right now, I can't wait to get up every day and go to those books because I know I'm going to learn something. It's just, it's just personally, I'm being a little bit selfish right now because I'd rather do this than, than anything. Brian Lamb is the founder and former CEO of C-SPAN. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kara. It was fun. bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain you need a test maybe not surprisingly at the end of our interview the master interviewer said that he had a couple of questions for me brian did you have a question yes i do carol yeah. uh, there's a series i have three or four questions anyway um where are you from well i was born in peterborough new hampshire and what got you into this business Oh, gosh. Totally, totally circuitously. I, at one point, I mentioned that when I started this show, I got $200 a week. The good news for you is that you got $200 for one Saturday show. I got $150 (laughs) for a whole week working as a freelancer for UPI Audio, but it was a few years before. I was going to say, was it 2010? Because, you know, 2011. 1968. I'm going to say you made out pretty well compared to me. We've got Brian Lamb's mini interview of me on our website, innovationhub.org. If you want to know if it's the truth, then my friend, you are going to need proof. Come up with a test. Yeah, you need a test. Thanks to the people who helped if put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer test. Doug Sugars. We yeah, also have production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.